subtext and discourse. Today you'll be hearing part two of my conversation with Australian paper collage artist Elizabeth Gowan. If you're not already, I'd recommend listening to part one first, though I dare say you can still enjoy this episode without having heard part one. We hear more about her recent work, the influence of collecting and cataloguing on her output, the use of patterns as abstract language across different cultures, as well as the importance of artist residencies. I mean, I did this uh, series of works for about three years to make called Chance or Design. It was all natural imagery, mm-hmm. which I don't hadn't normally done, but when I was doing the linear paintings from the 80s, I would always include natural imagery in it, you know, so there'd be in those paintings there was only one of each, one car, one aeroplane, one shoe, one elephant, you know, one um, one of each mm. object that I felt represented my life or, you know, a dog or a cat, you know. This was like symbolic of my life and yeah. a baby bottle and a paintbrush. And, and so I, uh, I'd collect trees and flowers and, and animals but just incorporated them as part of your suburban urban life. And then I started to, with the junk mail, um, you know, see all the different IKEA couches and all the different um, necklaces and earrings, and they're like a little species and all the different cars. And then I started to collect all the different dogs and all the different butterflies. And so that's it. And so I started to think, I'll just collect every image of the natural world and and just do a whole big sort of every natural image and I'll counterpoint that with every human image. Yeah. So every car species and every dog species and I'll sort of balance. Yeah. Because I think what humans do kind of mirrors nature, you know, yeah. symmetrical, you know, the four wheels on the cars, like the four legs and the two little lights, like two little eyes, you know, we sort of, we sort of make things that are like ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I did, so then I, that took, over a long time, so I collected every image of every butterfly I could find, every frog, every every rock, every or the rock wasn't living, but I liked yeah. them. Uh, every leaf, and that was like a adventure because everything was from an op shop. Mm-hmm. It was all mass produced. I wouldn't cut up a really good. Did find some beautiful books that I've never cut up. Yeah. Um, but you'd get old encyclopedias, and now with the internet it doesn't matter because you can get everything. But at the time this was pre-internet, and so I didn't want to wreck things. But yeah. I, you'd get all the National Geographics and you knew there was in bulk print. And so I'd cut them all up and eventually I had all these ice cream containers because we had kids mm-hmm. and ate a lot of ice cream. And, uh, and I'd put, okay, I've got animals, plants, fish, and then the fish became um, big fish, small fish, coloured fish, yeah. you know, crustaceans, and then there were like five things. And then the animals became like, you know, brown animals, animals with eggs, you know, frogs, you know, insects, you know, spiders, you know, and eventually yeah. I had like masses of them. And then I did a series, there's about 24 panels, and it was like a museum piece, you know how you arranged they arranged the butterflies mm-hmm. yes. um, with little pins and they'd make like a little pattern. And so I just started to make patterns with them. Like the butterflies actually, by radiating them, they look like flowers. So mm-hmm. I double hit, you know, flower and butterfly in one hit. The fish, are, they kind of naturally formed into these sort of radiating things because they're long and skinny and uh, um, 
birds. I had flying birds, coloured birds, brown birds, birds on water. Um, what other birds? And the coloured birds was just like a radiating rainbow. Um, and that was a great, um, really enjoyable. So what I was doing actually was learning about nature. I thought, I didn't know this because I'd be reading all the books too. Yeah. You know, I'd get these books and i think, did you know that rhinoceroses, that their thing is actually made of hair? And so I'd be reading all these books that I actually didn't know all this stuff. So part of it is my own actual education. Yeah. And I'd read about how the giraffe's blood goes up their neck because the series of valves. You think, well, I never knew that. And all the different frogs mm-hmm. and which ones are the poisonous ones and which ones aren't. And what I did collect, which I haven't used yet, is all the names, oh, the right. index. Yeah. Because in the back they'd have all the, you know, botanical and uh, and uh, natural, uh, what are you, the scientific Science names. names yeah. And uh, so I thought, oh, you, I could use this one day because everything's been labelled, like not just, you know, this is, not just a tiger, it's got its Latin mm. name, but every aspect of the animal has been named, the insides, the outside, the eyelashes, the ears, mm. the, for everything has got has been labelled by humans. There's a word for everything and, uh, and so I've collected all them but I've never really used them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do collect text as well. I've collected... The names of all the people I've spoken to in um, 2005, and I had a panel for each year, so it was 50 years, and it took quite a few years, and that was kind of fun too. Like I'd, I'd just go through all my old photos, all my old books, all my CVs, everyone's mm-hmm. CVs, because I'd try and work out when did I meet, for example, a friend of mine, Sue Ford, and I'd go through her CV and I'd say, I saw that show, that show, that show, that show. I reckon I met her in 1978. <laughs> Because I remember that show. Oh, you put it in chronological order. Or, yes. Yeah, so each panel was a year. Mm-hmm. So I think oh, I met her in 78 and I probably knew her in 79. Then I probably didn't see her for a while because I was living in London and then we had a run-in and then I think I met her again in, you know, 19. And so I would piece it together partly from memory, but I'd also got all my old um, student lists, which I'd inadvertently kept as a teacher because... You just do. I'm not sure why, but, you know, assessment forms and the oh, I better keep them in the file. So mm-hmm. you'd have a filing cabinet and you'd just put it in there. And so I'd go through all the um, student lists and uh, diaries. I don't keep a diary as, like, what I'm feeling, mm-hmm. but I have appointment diaries. Yes. And as a teacher too, you, you know, all the people you had to choose, they said, oh, that was, you know, that was that. Um, I also even went to my school reunion, which I'd never go to because I'm not really in, into school. Um, but this reunion came up and I thought, I'll photocopy all the class photos, take them along to the reunion, and I'll ask them, who was that person again? <laughs> she was my best friend, but I've forgotten her name. And and so then I pieced together the names of all the teachers. and So some of it was done talking to people. Others were done by getting the paperwork, mm-hmm. um, getting the old class list from when I was a high school teacher and and also asking people, saying, remember that dinner we had in 1993? Who was that person who was there who was really annoying? And they'd 
I'd piece it together. So it actually wasn't completely, there would have been people I missed. Yeah. Yes. But what was interesting is it starts off, um, I started it in 55 to 2005, so I sort of rounded it off. Mm-hmm. So I conflated um, the first few years to 55 was probably the time when I learned how to talk. Mm-hmm. And that was only a little list this high, you know, mum, dad, yeah. auntie, Marge, you know, that's only this many people. And then there's a little bit more the next year and then a little bit more. And then I go to school. Yeah. And then... Your, your life becomes bigger, bigger. And then it, there's years where it would come down again because we lived in London mm. for a couple of years and, you know, and then it would go really big when you're teaching. And then so it was sort of like a little sort of Geiger counter. So I do collect not just paper but also every now and then I do collect text and photographs and mm-hmm. things like that. And, again, I think it is... Oh, that's right. It's, this sounds really lame, but the reason why I started to collect the names of all the people I spoke to is because in the year 2000, because we never thought we'd live that long, and 1999, you know, let's have a big party because we're here, because we thought the water would blow up and by then. And we also thought we'd be so old by then, like why would we even yeah. want to be alive? And so I used to think, let's have a big party. Um, let's invite everybody we know, every single person we know, and have a big party. And so I started to just write down everyone we knew, and I thought, oh, this is going to cost a bit. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to hire a venue. And then it was sort of like, oh, and then the food, and then the thing, and then oh, I don't think we can. And then that sort of led to this idea of, all these people you know mm-hmm. and how they've all affected your life in some way. So it was this piece was called Conversations and it's not about, oh, look at all these people you know. It's made like every one of these people has had a conversation with me mm-hmm. and affected me in some way and I remember them. And, uh, and even some of them are just, you know, Joe who works in the supermarket, you know, like I don't know him other than Joe or Mrs. So-and-so who used to live next door. And so part of it was about, in a way, honouring all these people that had taken the time to have a conversation with me, Mm -hmm. really, and had sort of like affected me. It actually started off with trying to organise a party. (laughs) (laughs) And then it started, I started thinking, actually, this could make an interesting work. And so I did start to collect it in an ad hoc way for a while. And then when I decided to do it, I really honed in on the Mm -hmm. uh, searching everything. But um, And often I think that happens even with the papers. It's just an ad hoc sort of just throw it in the box, you know, I'll take that. But then when I really start to do something... I will go to the supermarket and only buy green things mm-hmm. because I need the green yeah. stuff or I just need to go and get that and I need those images and I'm just going to go and take 50 junk mail things and just get it. Yeah. Is there anything specific that you're making whilst you're here in Berlin for the month? No, I'm really just making these little in-transit collages is mm-hmm. what they're called um, and they really are simply that they're in transit i'm kind of quite enjoying it because i just did a big work last year which was 27 meters long Mm -hmm. and it was made out of sort of pixelated squares of paper stuck onto drafting film and 
one sort of pattern merged into the other, which merged into the other. And it was sort of symbolic of how different cultures merge and how certain designs, they all over mash. In, like if you look at the swastika, mm-hmm. you know, it's an Indian symbol, but then it's a Nazi symbol. and But it's also in a lot of Greek yeah. things. And it's sort of like the it's sort of symbolic of that interaction of and even with... Um, the French wallpapers, you know, there's all these overlaps with Victorian and French and, you know, everything kind of feeds into the other or Indigenous cultures, their designs, because every culture has their pattern, so mm-hmm. to speak, and has their design, has their... And it's a symbolic abstract language yeah. and it's a language. Like we look at um, the history of the world and we tend to read the history through figurative paintings but there's a concurrent abstract language and you can read it through all the designs in the weavings on the saucepans, on the rituals, on the, on the, the body painting. There's this other language that you can follow because I can look at something and I think, oh, that's, you know, Moorish, you know, that, that's Victorian, that's mm-hmm. Art Deco, that's from the Bauhaus, you know, this is, it's like another language that runs through a culture um, that is concurrent with our knowledge, which comes through figurative and movies and Hollywood and everything. Then you can look at, you know, fabric design from the 50s and there's a certain look. It's got that atomic futuristic look and the 60s is different. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a language that is in our culture. What was I saying this for? The pieces that you're making are all transient. Ah, yes, yes. So I'm picking up those kind of languages as well. Um, In Italy, from Assisi, I mean, there's a lot of Italian cut, tiled floors in all those churches and Baroque and all that sort of stuff. It's very Italian. Like, you Mm -hmm. can't go anywhere in Italy without seeing these particular structures. And there's that different structures that you see in lots of cultures which is different to here. Here, I mean, I'm here. There isn't anything. Um, But it's kind of, um, but I am interested in much more streamlined geometries. Like these ones are more, these two would be more Italian, so to speak, because there's a centre and they always have this repeated centre. Whereas these zigzaggy ones. Uh, have no centre, they're more just a field. I feel that is a little bit more here, mm-hmm. although not literally. Nothing's literal. No. It's just you just pick it up. I mean, Berlin is like Melbourne, is like New York, is like everywhere. It's like an urban city. And so it's just very similar. Um, but if I'm in somewhere like Assisi, it's very distinct or in Barcelona or something like that, you, you do get a, um, or if I was in Cuba or something, like you would get saturated, but not so much here. So I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I'm yeah. just doing in transit collages. Um, and I guess it would be the same when you go to New York afterwards. Yes. it's And like I say, it's kind of fun because of this large work I just did, which was a site that they had a 21-metre wall. And I had a big show there and I thought, oh, I've been wanting to do this work for a long time and I could do it on that wall. Mm -hmm. And so I made it, like, especially for this show, hence why it was 21 metres, but it could be 31 metres if I had a longer wall. 
it's on my website, the, probably the last, the first couple of images, a black and white one. And I had been collecting crossword puzzles because I like the little black squares, those QR codes, you know, the little... Yeah. And so inadvertently I was actually looking at my phone the other day and the last time we were in Berlin a couple of years ago, I got all these photos of QR codes that have been on billboards. Mm-hmm. And literally when I got back, I thought, why don't I do a thing in black, black squares on a white thing? And I can, because I can get that idea of the one pattern merging into the other. So a couple of years before that, there's the collection of QR codes, there's the collection of um, jigsaw puzzle pages, because I thought, oh, I might be able to use that. It's almost like you start doing it before you even yeah. do it. And then it, it seemed a way of getting that idea across. Also, the pixel is a language and, and we're used to seeing things in pixels now and then the notion of abstract design being a language. and mm-hmm. You know, so it sort of fitted together to do the, like a little pixel. But each square is a cut-out square from a magazine, which is another language. There's all text through. So it's like a triple whammy language. <laughs> So I'm actually quite like the freedom of just mucking around because that was a big commitment on the one yeah. focus. I did it in three metre lengths so that it sort of fits together in the space. I showed some other works. It was like a little mini survey, like maybe from the last 10 years or something like that because mm-hmm. um, I had two big galleries. And um, so that was kind of interesting to be able to do that. So now I'm just doing mucking around really yeah well it always seems like it's this is kind of just a nice break and how you said before that you can't you can't help not making things yeah you can't just sort of sit and not do something so you have to keep making things well also it is a response literally to the physical nature of the space i mean if i was really i was going to do some bigger works but now we're going to be in transit till september and i've got to put them in the suitcase i've got to Mm -hmm. get them from one place to the other and so i think I'll do them when I'm settled and I can actually stay and do it. Like the 21-metre work, there's no way you could do that in transit. You have to. And also I'm not finding that paper. Like if I wanted to do that here, I can't because it's not what I'm finding. You have to. So, yes, I'm just doing um, in-transit collages, which... They're to scale. Like they're what you cut out and stuff on. Yeah, you want to have a look closer or you yeah. have a look closer? Right? I'll have a look closer after this. But, yeah, yeah. I, even like the size of them as well. Sometimes when the works are really big, it's difficult for people to... Have that intimacy. Yeah, and because it's, you know, with that scale, it's like unless you've got a big space to put it in, yes. it's hard to appreciate it. Whereas ones like this that are essentially like A4 size or A5, you get a similar effect from it in a much, yeah, much more personable level, I think, which is quite nice. I think in my case it is something I've noticed that I do as well. It's sort of like I do big work and then I do like really little work and then I do big work. Yeah. It's almost like a breathing. Yeah. Definitely. And I think after you have done some large works, you just enjoy the small and this all drive me nuts soon and I want to do something really big. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is that sort of expand, contract, expand, contracting mm-hmm. a lot and I think in... I think a lot of artists do that, you know, they do little drawings and they play around and then they do the big project. Yeah. I think it's some sort of thing like that. The other thing is about the collecting, but I also have curated five shows on what, how and what artists collect. 
I mean, this is just me talking to you to cut this bit No, no, this is interesting. Um, And the first one I did was called The Art of Collecting because I had 300 coat hangers and I had them hanging up on the wall and the curator uh, was visiting and he was talking about, oh, I'm going to do a show and, you know, and I said, I could do a show on collecting. And and he says, oh, yeah, those coat hangers. And I said, yeah, because it was a huge wall, you know, like just this. And so I started to look at what other artists collect because what I like is how artists work Mm -hmm. and a lot of artists collect things it sometimes it doesn't ever do anything it's just a collection or sometimes it's a collection that goes straight into their work and so the show was about yeah what artists collect and they were things like spent tubes of paint there was one artist there and every time he'd squeeze the paint out and he'd squeeze it absolutely flat and then just throw it in a box under the table. So I'd go there and i said, do you collect anything? He says, oh, I collect antique clocks or something. And i said, what's in that box over there? He said, oh, that's all my spent tube. I just like them. And I said, that's in the show. So it's the things you collect when you think you're not collecting. So yeah. nothing's of any value. Um, one artist collected, you know, jars of the plastic tags you get on bread. And she's actually since... This year, we're talking 20, 30 years later, she's still collecting them really? and she's just done this big work with them. But she collected all these tags because they had like a use-by date yeah. and she just had this major breakup and she like did use-by date and she's passed her use-by date. And, and so we said, oh, great, you know. So sometimes it did lead into work. Mm -hmm. But all sorts of things. People collected knitting needles and one artist collected the dead mice from the studio because he had a mice plague and so he set traps and then he'd get come to the studio and there'd be all these little dead mice in the trap and he quite liked how they looked. And so he labelled some he found, he coated them with resin, I don't know what he did, but... And so he had this collection of little dead Oh, and he kept them in the tracks or? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was followed on, and you might like this one, was the, the, and that was a really great show to do and it was fun and, you know, people collected all sorts of stuff and it was a big show. And I guess people do that now. This was 93, so it was a little bit before people being aware of oddball mm. stuff to collect. People probably collect all sorts. I mean, everyone collects records, shoes, whatever. Yeah, but this is stuff, you know, this was, you know, people who collect um, bits of um, squash champagne wires. Yeah. And he actually was a sculptor who uses wire. And what's interesting, because it was a parallel to his work, and he had a few stuck on his notice board, and I thought, oh, they look really cool. And he says, oh, yeah, i got boxes on them. He likes the way they get squashed and they're almost like a little 3D linear drawing. Yeah. And so I thought, yeah, they're great. And so we had like a whole wall of this and they actually, but now I see them all the time and I think, oh, it's actually changed the way I see them because I hadn't seen it before. Anyway, that followed on about three years later by another art of collecting in camera Mm -hmm. because artists, this is pre-digital, Artists also collect through the camera and they're often source material for their work, but sometimes they just become the work. And so I started to ask around and say, well, what sort of things do you photograph? And then someone said, oh, I photograph all the mattresses on the side of the road. Now, this is a common thing to photograph now. Yeah. But in 1996, with an analogue camera, it was 
a, a purposeful mm. endeavour. Yeah, because we didn't have mobile phone cameras to just... No, I mean, you're actually just wandering along with the camera. And people collect all sorts of things in their photographs. And so there were some really interesting things that are often related specifically back to that person's practice. Like mm. there's an artist, Howard Ackley, who paints houses and yet he's got a collection of houses that he'd photograph oh, okay. that you'd then use for your work. But what's interesting is the photographs uh, and how the artist works. And I had collections of... Um, me standing in different places, which I've now done since 1980, and that's mm. what I showed in Athens. So I've got like about 300 photographs of places I've been, mm. basically. So I put those in. I also realised I had a collection of photographs of myself standing in my studio or at my show that I'd started in 1974 using up the roll of film. Oh. So you'd take <laughs> your photograph of the work and you'd have a couple of shots left and you think, oh, I'll take one of me standing in front of it or I'll take one of the studio and, and whoever was there, I'd say, well, can you take a photo of me standing there? Mm-hmm. And so I've got like hundreds of photos. It's like a sort of, and I've caught, I showed it recently at ACCA, Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. They had a show on... Um, unfinished business about feminism, how it's still unfinished. Mm-hmm. And so that was from 1974 to 2017. It's not just about me, it's who the photographer was, mm-hmm. which is written underneath, and the site. So it's a particular gallery photographed by often the director of the gallery yeah. or another artist. Or, so it's almost like the history of an artist and their life in their studio but it's also a history of the art world mm. because it's got a place and, and a lot of people are dead and, and, and galleries have shut and, yeah. you know, and people have moved on to jobs. You know, they were like the intern and now they're the curator and so the photographer was whoever was there. I find that bit interesting. So it's, a, it's sort of a portrait of me but it's really just a, the archetypal artist. It's mm. just the artist. And it goes from being from 74 which was the year before I probably had my first exhibition. It, oh, no, I was working towards my first exhibition. And just very quick, the other ones have been um, the retrieved object, which was I noticed in the 90s a lot of artists were sourcing the op shop or the thrift shop. Mm-hmm. And then the one I did more recently was Regimes of Value was I noticed artists were collecting trash from the street. So it's kind of like collecting in different forms. Yeah. And the retrieved object one was interesting because people were collecting stuff. They don't do it so much now because mm. it's more expensive, but for a moment in time, the op shop became the art store for a, quite a long time. And then the stuff on the street became... Now, not so much now. I think that's passed. I'll see if I can find the photos of yeah, the, like the art of collecting in photographs because people did some interesting stuff. And like I said, it was analogue and so they're really yeah i think that's what's interesting because it is of its time before yes. i think because now when well, if you did it is, now it wouldn't be as interesting because everyone's got it, yeah. mobiles like there was one guy who did photograph he'd throw all the scraps of the food into the saucepan mm-hmm. take them out to the compost heap and so they're above but it was more per- i think because it's more purposeful then and, I think and people now, take food now but yeah. this was like back in like you know the 90s and he would just start you just really like the aesthetics of how the food 
was yeah. in the bottom of the bowl, just stuff like that. It was sort of fun to see and also to see the artist's thinking, mm-hmm. which almost preempts what how people think now. Yeah, definitely, because I think now I guess people have the option now because before you would have thought, oh, I should take a photo of this. I'm seeing all these things around. I don't have a camera at my well. Yes. Whereas now it's like, oh, actually I can. I can get a picture of yes. this. And I think other people that have maybe got that different way of seeing things now have the facility yes. to document it, which they wouldn't have before. But also it was the artist's who were doing it, who gave people this idea that, oh, you can photograph this sort of, you know, corner of a building, you know, not not always the person standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. It's like, maybe I'll just take a photo of the the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was this guy and he'd broken up with his girlfriend and and he had a trip to Paris and and it was a disastrous um, breakup just before he got on the plane. He had the analogue camera, Mm -hmm. first selfie. So he decided, I'm going to take a picture of me in Paris and I'm going to show her. So we <laughs> held the camera. Here I am at the Eiffel Tower and you're not here. Here I am outside the Louvre and you're not here. And it was just like maybe about 10 shots. Yeah. But it was like, I like the the, the first selfie really in the 90s. But it was, and the motive <laughs> was good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Elizabeth Gowan. If you've not heard part one already, I'd recommend going back and completing the circle. We have a few more postcard participants coming up soon. However, after that, I'll be branching out somewhat and meeting with others in the field. As always, I welcome any comments, questions, and feedback to each episode. Please follow on social media to keep up to date with goings-on at Jarvis Dooney Gallery and my other activities in the art world. If you like what we're doing and want to keep the podcast free of adverts, please support us on Patreon. Thanks once again for listening. My name is Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.